Thank you, Brother Eric. Glad to have um, you all here this morning for our Sunday service. And to those that are joining online, welcome as well. So we are going through the book of Philippians. Um, we are a church who has a conviction that uh, we should preach in an expository manner. That means that we pick a book from the Bible and then we start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we go through the whole book. Right now we're going through the book of Philippians. And as you can see, we're in chapter 2. So we will uh, read the passage for today, which is Philippians 2, 9 to 11. And then I'll give a, a brief synopsis of what we've seen so far in the book of Philippians and then expound upon these two verses. All right, so if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word, Philippians 2, starting in verse 9. <clears throat> the inerrant and infallible word of God reads, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. As this morning we are reminded once again that Jesus is King, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus indeed is creator of all. That Jesus is in control of everything. And that's because Jesus is God Almighty. Lord, we ask that the, by the power of your Holy Spirit, these truths may be impressed in our minds, in our hearts. That we would turn to worship Christ. So that we may give glory to you. And so that we may be blessed, Lord. May you speak to us this morning through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I titled the sermon for this morning... The supremacy of Christ. And what I'm hoping to get out of this morning from the sermon is for us to re be reminded or even to acknowledge or know for the first time that Jesus indeed is above everyone and everything. The supremacy of Christ. So far in chapter 1 of Philippians, we have seen that this letter is written by Paul, the Apostle Paul, to the church at Philippi. And we can see that this letter is addressed specifically to the leadership of the church, the pastors, the deacons, and to the people, to the congregants, to the saints. So once again, a reminder that the context of this letter is written to a local church, just like we are a local church. This letter has application to us in our real life. And the overall theme of this book is encouragement through Christ. Encouragement through Christ. Then, chapter 2, we see that Paul urges the church at Philippi to be in unity with one another. He urges the Philippian church to love one another, to serve one another in humility. And there's a reason for that. The reason that Paul says that the, Philipp the Philippian church should act in such a manner is because of what Christ has done already. He's not given them an order just for the sake of having 
any sort of authority over them, but he's giving them the reason why they should heed his instruction. He's telling them that they should do that because Christ has already given them encouragement, because Christ has already given them comfort from love, because Christ has made them already partakers of God the Holy Spirit, because Jesus has given them affection and sympathy, and because of that, they should strive to be united, to serve one another in humility, and not to be shallow in their unity. How many times, if we are honest, can we not confess that we may have shallow unity? Even amongst our family, amongst our church, where if there's something that is bothering us, or if there's something that we have done wrong that perhaps we should apologize for, we kind of don't want to go there. We keep everything superficial so that we don't stir in the pots, so that everything seems to be in unity and seems to be in peace, but in reality, it is not, right? We should not have fake peace for the sake of making things appear as if they are peaceful when they are not. Paul is calling them to genuine peace, to genuine unity as a church. And that's when Paul turns to tell them that they should serve each other in humility, which ultimately will bring confirmation that they are in Christ, that they are a true church, and that they do give glory to God. They should not overlook serving each other in humility. And that's where Paul turns to giving the ultimate example of the one who gave the example of how to be humble, of how to be perfect, of how to be a perfect, humble servant. As we saw last week when Brother Eric preached, that perfect example is in, in Jesus. And none other than Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So let us be reminded of that passage. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, which is what Brother Eric preached last week. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there, Paul is saying, is telling the Philippians, unify, be humble, serve one another. And then he says, Jesus is our ultimate example of a humble servant. Let's chew on that idea for a second. Christ, Jesus, came from being God from eternity past, God the Son. It says he was already in the form of God. Jesus did not begin to exist when he was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus was pre-existent from eternity past as God. And then it says that he took the form of a servant. Of a servant. He took the form of a human. And hence, we can start to see how from the most exalted position possible, which is God himself, he emptied himself of that 
and humbled himself, entered his creation. So that's where Jesus started from, and that's where he humbled himself too. And when we say that he humbled himself, he not only humbled himself, but he subjected himself to be humiliated, sped upon, insulted, mocked, laughed at. When he could have wiped everyone out at the snap of a finger, he humbled himself and subjected himself to humiliation. Now, let us think about where we start. We start far, 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 infinitely far below Jesus. We start as fallen human sinners, being born sinners. We don't become sinners. We are born sinners. And yet, when we look at the example of Christ being perfect, being God Almighty, he humbled himself. Why is it then that it is so difficult for us to humble ourselves? We start off as being the worst of the worst. Our thoughts, our words, our actions, our behavior. Even as Christians, pride and arrogance, unforgiveness will creep in. And I mean, as non-Christians, even more. Perhaps go even unnoticed. And then it is difficult for us to acknowledge that we need a savior because it is difficult for us to humble ourselves. And we can start to see why Paul is giving such importance to the issue of my brother Philippians. Remember to serve each other. Remember to humble yourselves. Remember to put the interests of others before yours. We can start to see why that is. And then we can ask ourselves. When was the last time that I humbled myself? When was the last time that I offered me being right to talk things out so that I can be at peace? Or when was the last time that I offered forgiveness because forgiveness has been offered to me? When was the last time that we humbled ourselves to our spouse, to our children, to our brother and sister in Christ, to our acquaintance. When was the last time that we put our pride aside instead of inflicting pain on another or wanting to vindicate ourselves in our pride rather than taking the route that Jesus took of humbling himself? And hopefully we can start to see, wow, Jesus having no obligation to be humble, to humble himself, because he is God Almighty, yet he chose humility when he came to this world. And hence the Paul's appeal here, the appeal of Paul to the Philippians is, brothers, sisters, humble yourselves. I know it is against your nature to do so, but humble yourselves, because only then will you be able to have the mind that is in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. Then we see that humility and the humiliation of Christ, which he willingly submitted to, shame, torture, death. Why was that? Why? Because in order to reconcile sinners like us to God, a perfect sacrifice had to be made. 
and no one else had what it took in order to fulfill that sacrifice other than God himself. Hence, the need to humble himself and enter his own creation. Because otherwise, nobody else can foot that bill. And in him, taking that humility, taking that role of a perfect sacrifice, the wrath of God was able to be put on the perfect sacrifice, on Jesus. Because sin, us being separated from God, requires a sacrifice. And that sacrifice must be perfect. And there's no such thing as perfection in any human. So Jesus had to come and enter his own creation to become the perfect sacrifice. So that all those who trust in him and repent of sin and trust in his righteousness can then reconcile with God and have eternal life. Now, in this passage that we are studying today, we see how after his humility, now his exaltation is displayed. God humbled himself, subjected himself to a shameful death, and now we are being told that he is now exalted. And that's where we pick up the passage this morning. Be servants. Serve one another. Hey, look at the example of Christ. And after we see the example of humility, Paul is now telling us, and now look at how exalted he is. This message of humility in order to be exalted. Let's take a quick look at a couple of verses that talk about that. It's a, it's a very common theme in scripture. Humility. If we think of ourselves for who we really are, knowing that we are owed nothing, rather that we are sinners, we know our place, we humble ourselves, and God will exalt us. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. 1 Peter 5.6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So we see that constant theme throughout scripture of humbling ourselves, knowing our place, knowing that we are dependent upon God, and then he lifts us up. And then there's some warnings about being prideful and exalting oneself. It's like, I don't need God. I'll, I'll make my own glory be known. I'll make my own goodness be known. What happens when we take that attitude? Let's take a quick look. A couple of verses talk about that. James 4, 6 says, But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 29, 23 One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. One more, Luke 14, 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility versus being prideful. The reward for being humble is 
God will exalt you. Whereas the consequence, or we could even say the punishment for us being prideful, is that sooner or later, God will crush you. And you will know that you are not above God. Now, we can be thinking, oh yeah, I, I have somebody in my mind right now who thinks so highly of themselves. My, my friends, my brothers and sisters, if we're thinking that way, you're already struck out. Because you're thinking, well, I'm glad I'm not as arrogant as they are. Right? I've been there many times before, trust me. I'm like, wait a minute, like I'm trying to think about them, like what about me, right? So Jesus then is the ultimate example of humility, selflessness, servanthood. And the result of that is that God has given him the position, the name, the exaltation that is above everything and everyone. Therefore, as we explore today the supremacy of Christ, we will see two main points. First, that the humility and humiliation of Christ results in his exaltation. That is the exaltation of Christ. What does that mean? And secondly, we will see that that exaltation of Christ demands an ultimate response. What will be the ultimate response to the exaltation of Christ? So let's take a quick look at those two things. First, the exaltation of Christ. After he is shown humble, then his glory will be shown. That'll take us to the first verse that we're studying today. Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the first word there, therefore, is the understanding that what is coming next, what is about to be said, is as a result of what was just said. And we already covered that. What was just said is that Jesus showed the ultimate, the ultimate example of humility. And now he's been given a place of honor, of exaltation. And let us think about what exaltation, what honor means. Throughout history, throughout cultures, something that transcends Culture abounds is when we know that somebody has a particular honor, a particular importance. Obviously, we all are created in God's image and in God's eyes. He shows no partiality. We are all created in God's image and therefore are equally valuable in his sight. However, there are positions of honor. As part of my corporate job, I have been in countless meetings around the world and this is where I've noticed that this type of attitude and common understanding transcends cultural boundaries. It goes something like this. We are in a meeting room, anywhere from 20 to 30 people, and we are waiting for either a COO, a CEO, a VP, a military distinguished general so that we can start the meeting when that person enters the room the chit chat stops everybody takes their seat 
And it doesn't need to be said that the person that just entered the room has authority. Okay. The authority that somebody has because of the position that has been given to them. That's very important. This is something that transcends all cultures. Now, one thing is for sure, as far as the business is concerned in that particular setting, all of us there waiting for that person, we know that our position in that business, in that meeting, in that corporate world, our position is not higher than that person. We know that. And if we say something inappropriate or we act inappropriately or we disrespect this person, you better assure there will be consequences, especially if it's a military meeting. Okay. We cannot ignore the authority of someone that could give consequences to our behavior. That's the main idea there. And at one point or another, we've all been there. Similarly, because we know who Jesus is, because we know the position that he holds, we better realize that if the proper response to the authority of Jesus is not given, there will be consequences. And not only consequences in this world, but consequences of eternal impact. So more of that in a bit. First, let's take a look here at the exaltation of Jesus. When the text says that God has highly exalted him, it means that God the Father has given a particular honor to God the Son. Those two words, highly exalted in the Greek, it means to honor exceptionally, to give a status that is far beyond what is usual in magnitude or degree, lifting someone up to an uncommonly high position. So the language that is used there to somebody reading it in that language and in that context can know that something is very unusual. This Jesus that is being talked about, I'm told that has been given a place that previously has been given to no one. Hmm, wow. Now, just like in that room when the boss walks in, you got my attention. Like there's something major going on here. And the understanding is that no one has ever nor will ever be given that position. It belongs to Christ and Christ only. In Hebrews 1 verses 5 and 6, it says, speaking about Jesus, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In that first chapter of Hebrews, the author had just finished saying how in previous times, God has spoken through the prophets, right? Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. And those were held in very high regard. But then he says, now in these latter times, God has now spoken to us through his son. Right? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
So we see then the supremacy of Jesus in relation to the prophets, the messengers of God who came before. And then in the passage that we just read, is saying that he is also exalted above the angels. So then Jesus holds a unique position, unimaginably high, higher than the prophets put together, and even much higher than the angels, to the point that God the Father orders angels, and by implication humans, to worship him, worship Jesus. Now, unless Jesus himself is God, that would be blasphemy. Why? Because from the scriptures and from the audience reading this, they know that worship belongs to God and God alone. Anything else will be blasphemy. So we're getting the indication here that the place that is being given to Jesus is the place that belongs only to God. And hence the language of this position that is unusually high. This position that will never be given to anyone else except to the one that already holds it, which is Jesus. And now we are being exposed to exactly what that position is. When it says that this name, the name that has been given to Jesus, it refers then to a particular position, not necessarily to the name in and of itself. The name Yeshua, meaning Jehovah saves, it was a pretty common name in the time of Jesus. Just like nowadays, you know, my son's name is Ezekiel. We name our kids according to uh, some of the biblical names. Same thing back in those days. There was a lot of people named Jesus. So it's not the name itself. We get the idea that it's a place, a position of honor. It's a position being given to Jesus. The one who has ultimate power, as the scripture says, not only to kill the body, but he's the only one who has the power that after he kills the body, he can then throw that body and the soul into hell. That's the type of authority that we are talking about here. Ultimate authority. Therefore, Jesus is to be honored, worshipped, feared, exalted, loved, and followed. And we note that God the Father is the one who exalts him. And we get the idea then that self-exaltation, if we try to exalt ourselves, the result sooner or later will be humiliation. Our self-exaltation because of our position, because of our possessions, because of our abilities, because of our talents, because of what, whatever it is that could give you a position above others in this world. If we do not humble ourselves before Christ, sooner or later, the result will be humiliation, either in this life or in the life to come. So after the humility of Jesus, now we see that he's been given that exalted place. Moving on to point number two. We will see the ultimate and correct response to the position of Jesus. We will see that we should not take our call to respond to who Jesus is as mere information. There's two specific applications of what the response implies. First, the first appropriate response is worship of Jesus. 
Philippians 2.10 says, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So at the name of Jesus, what's going to happen? Who? Everyone. Every knee. And what will everyone do? We'll bow. What does that mean? Let's explore what somebody bowing in this sense means. This is also quoted in Romans 14, 11 to 12. Let's read what that says. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is a quote from the Old Testament and is quoted there in Romans and is quoted in Philippians. It's a reference from the book of Isaiah, chapter 45. The context of that chapter of Isaiah is that God is reminding his people that there is only one true and living God. God is saying, there is no other God besides me. I'm the only sovereign Lord who knows the future. I'm the only sovereign Lord who has absolute control of everything and everyone and any other so-called deity, any other so-called God is nothing but a worthless idol. That is the context in which then God speaks in Isaiah 45 and says the following. Isaiah 45, 23. This is Jehovah in the Old Testament talking. He says, by myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. See that? Who's talking? Jehovah God, God Almighty. And he's saying to him alone and to him only, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess allegiance to him. So then, when we realize that this is the very words of Yahweh, of Jehovah of the Old Testament, and Paul is writing this letter, he knows exactly what he's doing. He is attributing to Jesus the position and honor that belongs only to Jehovah, the only true God, the only sovereign Lord. And then anyone that is hearing this or reading this that Paul wrote, they can have only two conclusions and only two conclusions. One, Paul is out of his mind. He doesn't know what he's saying because he's committing blasphemy. He's giving to Jesus the position that belongs only to Jehovah God. Or, Jesus is God. There's no third option. Now remember, Paul is a scholar in the Old Testament. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knows exactly what he's writing. So Paul then is unapologetically clear. Jesus is God and every knee will bow to him. Give worship to him. And in case there should be any doubt, Paul makes it all inclusive. All beings in heaven, the angels, the saints that have passed and are now in heaven, anyone on earth upon the return of Christ, and anyone under the earth, those who are condemned in hell forever for rejecting Christ, even they, everyone will recognize and will know that, wow, Jesus is God. 
and his majesty is so great that I cannot help but kneel and worship him and declare that he is Lord, either in our salvation or in our condemnation. When the scripture says that every knee will bow, you take that to the bank. That will happen. Either here or in the consequence of our sin. So the first appropriate response then to the revelation of who Jesus is, Jesus is God Almighty, we owe the first proper response, which is worship, recognition of that. The second appropriate response, as we will see here in Philippians 2.11, which is the last verse in our passage today, is submission to the Lordship of Christ. And we need to really remember that submission to the Lordship of Christ will be a validation that our confession of Him as Lord is actually true. That our recognition of Him as God is actually genuine. It will be a validation that we actually are submitting to Him. Philippians 2.11 says, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this confession is the validation that someone indeed worships God, that someone indeed is saved, and that it's not just lip service. Confessing Christ as Lord implies a submission to his rule. Just like in a covenant relationship of marriage, if I say I love my wife, if I say I love my kids, my covenant with my wife, my home. But I have no regard for my home. What happens if all of a sudden I, I don't care how my kids are doing? I, as a matter of fact, what if I don't even go back home in a few days? Oh, but I love my wife. Oh, I'll defend my wife. Does that really mean anything? Is my attitude, is my conviction, is my actions showing that my confession of loving my wife and my family are true? No, it is not. In like fashion, there's a warning for us that to confess Christ as Lord implies a submission to his rule and not just an intellectual acknowledgement of, yeah, I mean, he's Lord. Yeah, yeah, he's God. I mean, it's clear. It is. But, eh, I'll still do whatever I want. Let us be reminded of Two verses in which Jesus questions this very thing. Luke 6.46 says, this is Jesus talking, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? See that? The declaration of Jesus being Lord is followed by an action, by a lifestyle, by conviction, by a worldview. How do I think? How do I speak? How do I act? If and when Christianity becomes persecuted in this country and they catch you, will there be enough evidence to convict you as a Christian? Or will you pass as someone who is lip service only? See that? John 14, 15, Jesus talking again. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Submission to the Lordship of Christ. 
my brothers and sisters, I know that this is difficult. Because we live in a time in history, we live in a culture, we live in a country in which declaring ourselves Christian has been declared and thought of as this easygoing path, as this easygoing lifestyle. And it's easy to slip into the worldview and into the lifestyle of the world. And as uncomfortable as it is, I need to remain true to the word of God and remind myself and you that we need to be different than the world. We need to submit to the Lordship of Christ. Nowadays, even within evangelical circles, when someone, ha when someone has true biblical convictions and preaches the gospel and preaches repentance and preaches on sin, oh, you guys are a bunch of legalists. Even within their own church. Because there has been less and less regard for the word of God, for the truth of the gospel, for the need of repentance, for the need to confess to one another, for the need to show that our life has fruit. And has been watered down by cheap grace. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus says. We need his grace, his strength, his mercy in order to be obedient to him. We can't do it on our own. So then, in recap, what have we learned today? Well, number one is that humility... It's a constant message in scripture and our ultimate example of humility was Jesus. Why is humility so important? Well, if we lack humility, it will ultimately lead to rejection of Christ. I'm okay. I mean, I, need, I may need a little bit of help, but I really don't need a savior. If we lack humility, we will ultimately reject Christ. Matthew 13, 3 says, Jesus speaking again here, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Talking about the humility, the submission of a child, childlike faith, dependent on his daddy and his mommy. Unless you have that attitude of submission, you will not, Jesus says, enter the kingdom of heaven. The key then is that without humility, we will never see the hopelessness that we are in when we're in our sin. We think that we're adequate. Eh, I may need a little help here and there. I'll go to church here and there. But eh, I'll be fine. My brothers and sisters, wrong. Let us not be found the day of judgment with Jesus telling us, Depart from me. I never knew you. And what does the scripture says? Oh, but Lord, Lord, I did this in your name. I did that. I proclaim your name. He says, depart from me. I never knew you. You proclaimed, but your heart was far away from me. Secondly, another reminder. Do we know Christ? Do we truly know Christ? As we have seen, Jesus is God Almighty. Jesus humbled himself by becoming a man, lived a perfectly humble life, 
never once committed sin, was crucified for the sins of all those who would repent, and those who would believe in him would become reconciled to God. That's who Jesus is. He's God Almighty, entered his creation so that we could be reconciled to God by trusting in him. Jesus is Lord of all. He's King of kings, Lord of, Lord of lords, ruler over all rulers. Even now, Jesus is sovereign over every president, prime minister, governor. Jesus is sovereign over that. And he will have the last word. We better believe it. And every knee will bow to him. You can take that to the bank. That's who Jesus is. Do we know him? And lastly, then, what has been our response? What has been your response to who Jesus is? How we have done thus far in, in our life? Has it been an attitude of ignorance? Like, oh, actually, I didn't know or I wasn't sure who Jesus was. Well, if you're listening to this today, that's not, that shouldn't be the position anymore. Should be ignorance because now we are reminded of who Jesus is. And the response of worship and submission to his lordship that is demanded. Would it be apathy? Oh, I know who Jesus is. I grew up in the church. But, nah, I mean, I got too much going on. I'm too young, right? I, I got other things that I'm into. Or I'm in my midlife years. I, I got too much busyness going on. Or eh, I'm kind of old, that kind of stuff. Can't teach a old dog new tricks, right? Make all kinds of excuses. But the point being that we could be apathetic to who Jesus is. Really has no impact in our life. I'm simply not interested. Eh. That is a rejection of Christ. Make no mistake. Or hopefully we can be here where it's continual repentance. Continual submission to his lordship. Lord, I fail. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I fell again, and I don't feel good. Your Holy Spirit doesn't even let me sleep. I can't. Help me. And what the scripture says that Jesus turns no one away that comes to him. Because in the first place, you're being drawn to him by his grace, by his mercy, by his love. Continue repentance, continue submission to his lordship. So that we can remember that you will bow your knee to Jesus. You will acknowledge who he is. It'll either be in this lifetime or at the time of your condemnation. It is our prayer this morning then that this recognition of who Jesus is would have real fruit in our lives. That we will persevere in the faith. That we will have continued submission, continual worship because of who he is. And the practical application of that today is, is the mind that was in Christ of humility, of forgiveness, of knowing my place. Am I showing that today? And maybe some of us, if we're honest, we can say, nah, that's not me. I think that I'm higher than I actually am. I think that others are wrong. They should repent. But I'm fine. If that is our attitude, brothers and sisters, that's a sign, that's a red flag where Jesus is telling us, repent. Humble yourself. As that is the practical application this very day 
of where our heart or mind stands in relation to, am I humble? Because after we saw the humbling and humiliation of Christ, he was given the most highly exalted position, which is the position of God Almighty himself. May we have the conviction to know who he is, and because of that, be humble like he was humble, so that he can then exalt us. That is our prayer this morning. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage in Philippians that is so crucial, so impactful, so powerful, Lord, of being reminded who Jesus is. That his humility, his humiliation led to us knowing that he has been given the name above all names. The place that belongs only to God Almighty because he is God. Help us, Lord, that we would turn to you. That we would worship Christ. That we would submit to his lordship. And that the very sign of that repentance we show today, Lord, in our humility, in our forgiveness in us seeking peace with one another, in loving each other. For you said that others will know that we are your disciples by the love we have for one another. May that be true and clear to us this morning. We ask that you will grant this for us this morning, Lord, because we cannot do it on our own. We cannot. Unless you intervene, we cannot do it. And when you do give us that conviction, may we have the strength and the courage to act upon it. And be godly men and godly women. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.